Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Welcome to Lit Up. On this week's podcast episode, I have my friend and fabulous writer, Natalka Burian. We're going to talk about many things this episode because Natalka is so multifaceted. Firstly, we're going to talk about her debut novel, Welcome to the Slipstream, which is a mother and daughter tale set in Vegas of all places. Then we're also going to talk about another book she has out called A Woman's Drink. Now, Natalka and her husband run two of the coolest and most gorgeous bars in New York City, both in different parts of Brooklyn. And what Natalka did was she paired these beautiful cocktails that they make there with the kind of most radical, fabulous women she knows. And not just knows, but people she admires. And she's paired up the cocktails to suit the woman. And the women in the book kind of talk about what their favourite drink is and, you know, who they are and why they have the opinions they do on the world. Natalka has another string to her bow And that's as the co-founder of The Freya Project with Noni Brzezinski. Together they raise money for women in small communities um, in need. So that might be for people who need access to abortion. It could be for people running organisations that help with trans rights. You name it, but they're very, they like to seek out and find non-profits that are doing important work particularly in rural communities where they might not be supported. Uh, I think you'll fall in love with Natalka in this episode. I thoroughly enjoyed speaking to her about all these parts of her life and I hope you enjoy the podcast. I'm so lucky to have Natalka Burian here with us and we've been so lucky to know one another through the Freya Project. Firstly, we're here to talk about your novel, Welcome to the Slipstream. Um, I read that your main character, Van, who's a 17-year-old, was actually a part of another book and that obviously that book didn't come out. But what was that process like and how did you come across this this 17-year-old girl and knowing that she had to launch off and be the center of another book? Yeah, I think that's such a good question. And I think that like, it's one of those weird indescribable, like you just kind of know, you know, it's like falling in love or something. Like you just know when someone's going to carry a story. And, um, and as sad as I was to sort of abandon that, that book, I just couldn't stop thinking about this girl in the book. And I, and I just kept thinking about her and thinking about her. And I, like, I, I, one day I just sort of experimented and I was like, well, let's see what happens. And she, before I knew it, like she just kind of took off and it was really, it was really, it was a very, um, I think sometimes like you work on a project that just kind of climbs out of you. And this was a project like that. Like it really felt like I was, I was doing, like it was very, it was very easy. Unlike the project I'm working on now, which is so much harder. Um, but I, it was, it was just a delight. It was like a really joyful experience to, to write this book and I definitely 
you know, um, I definitely wouldn't have done it had I not sort of met that character in a different book. There's really three very interesting women at the crux of this. Um, maybe can you tell us a little about them, yeah. about Sophia, Ida, and Van, and how this unusual family came to be? Yeah, I think, um, so I knew I wanted it to be about a girl and her mother, primarily. I was really interested. I have two daughters, and they were really young, and sort of it made me do a lot of reflecting on my own um, experiences as a daughter and as a mother, and I was just really fascinated by the scope of that kind of relationship and how, again, like not to not to bring it back to the cocktail book, but you know how so many you can be so many you can have so many different kinds of relationships with the same person. You know, through the course of your life, like the same person can be so many can provide you know a source of support, but also source of anxiety and discomfort and um, and I just kind of wanted to think about that and and so Van's relationship with her mother sort of began in that place where I was I really wanted to explore the scope of what it means to be a parent and a child and when those when those functions are sort of flipped what does that look like too um, and then Ida is actually based on on someone who and from my childhood who I um, I really wanted to include as a stabilizing, like a like some foundational, like a like a tether for Van because she, I think, it would have been too cruel to sort of leave you know to leave the two of them on their own journey. So it was almost like I, I felt like I had to give her give them give them both someone um, to hold hold them together in those really difficult in those difficult moments, which I knew were going to have to happen. Um, and she's like, well, how would you describe her? She was almost like the nanny and then becomes yes. a part of the family. Yes, exactly, exactly. So she's like, a, you know, I think a lot of people who've read the book ask me, do you want, like, was she intended to be like a freeloader? Are we supposed to be like, oh, dis- are we supposed to dislike her? And I think like maybe a little bit, like I think there is like a little bit of, like I, w- I wanted people to think she was opportunistic a little bit, um, but... I also, uh, I don't know. I also think that there is genuine love between the three of them, and um, and there's a big twist at the end um, that we can't <laughs> reveal. But so, who, what was this person like in your life? Yeah. So I, this was a woman who I knew, who was a family friend of mine, and growing up. And this is again, like maybe this is like part of why all of this makes sense. But when I was growing up, my family life was very. Oh man, it was very unusual. And I did not have like the, you know, the dinners with my family all together. You know, I didn't have like the same upbringing as so many people that I met later on in life. And um, my parents were like very busy and working all the time. And a lot of it was sort of fending for yourself. You know, my childhood, me and my brother, we were um, very self sufficient and we sort of like did our own thing as much as we could. Um, and I think that's honestly one of the reasons why I love hospitality and why I went into hospitality as my line of work because I just really appreciate that home you can have among strangers and like you can go into a space that's that's not your home but that feels like your home. You know what I mean? And, and I love like creating that space for other people. And I think that's I think that's 
why I started doing that. Like, I, I think that this is all sort of, I mean, it's all connected, obviously, obviously, very tenuously, but I think that there's like a, re, that's sort of the heart of, of all of this. But the woman um, who inspired the Ida character, she was a family friend who sort of stepped in at a time that was really my, you know, we'd had a death in our family. Um, she stepped in at a time when it was just very, you know, even in, even at our, like our best, we couldn't have held it together. And she was just very, um, she was very generous. And, and this was someone my, my family knew through church. So she came in and she just kind of didn't leave when we, we thought she would leave and she just stayed. She didn't live with us, but she definitely was spent a lot of time um, helping out. And I, I have such fond feelings for her and, you know, sadly she's passed away, but it was really, um, I just wanted to honor her like that too. And it was very easy to sort of like, I don't know, she was easy to find too and easy to, like, because I had this connection with this other woman. Well, and in the book, these three move um, to Vegas, which is a very yeah. interesting choice <laughs> because Sophia, the mom, is kind of a brilliant woman who goes in to consult and, de- you know, design spaces. Maybe you can tell me a little more about kind of what inspired her job. But because she's, I mean, I would say mentally ill, mm-hmm. Ida is this stabilizing force. But I was like, it's a lot to to throw on these characters. Yeah. Um, Why Vegas in this scenario? I just, I think Las Vegas is such a alluring setting. And it's, there's just so much, every, like the range of human emotion in that space that shouldn't exist in the middle of the desert. It's like a mirage, you know, it's like this, it's this like the crazy, you know, city of lights in the middle of the most beautiful natural, you know, one of the most beautiful natural surroundings in our country. Um, and it's a place where people go to, you know, have the most, they get married or they have like, they win millions, you know, thousands of dollars or exactly. So many extremes or they lose everything or it's like they're spiraling in these horrible addiction cycles or who knows what else, but it's also a city of secrets. Like, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. So I feel like as a as a setting, it's just, it was so um, like kind of like a no brainer to me. I just I kind of couldn't imagine not setting part of the book in Las Vegas. It was just very enticing because Sophia's the mom decides that she won't leave this hotel where she's working. I mean, I don't want to give anything away, but her idea is that she will stay inside that hotel and not leave for three months for the contract of you know. To, to fulfill the contract. And that idea to me just made me feel like I couldn't breathe. But yeah. I can imagine that for some people that's fine. Yeah. You just walk around in the, these kind of webs of hallways yeah. without natural light. Yes. Yeah. No, I think, well, and the book specifically is sort of designed to, like that part, that portion that's set in Vegas is, is, this, is like a protected sort of like, contained like things are contained and then when they break it like it, the the setting moves to the actual desert and then that becomes like a much wilder ride um and i think that's sort of in a scenario where a, i think a family member you know if you have a family member or a close friend or a loved one who um who's living with mental illness like i think that that balance is very familiar like how do you make this work like how do you support this person how do you how do you keep everyone functioning and then um, 
what happens when that, those things fail? You know, what's, what happens when all of your best efforts and, you know, not, like the, the mind sort of escapes everyone and you, you're sort of, what do you do as, as a loved one? How do, you, how do you protect that person when they're in the, you know, in the desert of their mind? Like, what do you do? Well, and also how do you protect yourself, which I think for a 17-year-old daughter who's dealing with a mum who has mental illness, what would you say her illness is? Yeah, so it's, it's bipolar disorder in the book. And um, I think that Sophia has experimented with medication, but with, you know, I think it's not atypical for someone with bipolar disorder to sort of go off their medication from time to time and try to find other ways to manage it. And in the book, it sort of catches Sophia at a time where she is unmedicated and and trying to sort of handle it on her own. And um, and Van very much is bearing the brunt of those consequences in the, in the rest of the book. Well, it's always very interesting who comes in when people are vulnerable as well. Mm-hmm. So in the book, there is, I have to get this right, a astrotherapist. Yes. So what is an astrotherapist? So not a real therapist. <laughs> Someone who... Um, and I had, this was also a really fun part of researching the book. There are so many really fascinating alternative medicine, uh, especially in that part of the country, in like in the Southwest. There's a huge, I think, for whatever reason, I'm not sure why, but there is a huge market for these like alternative therapists. There's like the crystals and the, again, even even like very legitimate like meditate. There are like a lot of legitimate treatments that are sort of. Um, build alongside of these more um, experimental treatments. And uh, I looked into this astrotherapist because I wanted her to be someone who's very well-meaning and I wanted her to be someone who like wasn't necessarily a, a charlatan, but somebody who believed in her work. Um, but actually the work was not founded on any real, anything real. So it was, it was a challenge. I wanted to find like someone who could be theoretically like consulted in this scenario but have no ground to stand on or support to offer like it was sort of just to compound the frustration in the moment and would you say that this place where these people gather is like a cult totally yeah I wanted it to be like well I also just wanted it to to seem like I didn't want it to seem too dangerous but at the same time I wanted it to be like walking that line between like you know, that like devotion, like that devotion can be, can turn so quickly, like from like, you know, sincere admiration into just like a, a very a dark place. I wanted it to be like a, a dark place for Van to discover. And um, yeah, it is definitely a, a cult. And the, the leader is like very charismatic and she's um, again, like another woman, another woman. Um, she's very mercenary she's definitely someone I think of all the people who do damage to this family in the book this woman is like the most malicious um and I think it's you know she's clearly trying to get you know I think her her goal is to get financial um to get financial support from Sophia at some point and um and Van is just trying to extract her mother and sort of doesn't know what to do and I think that the cult also makes it like it destabilizes the 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 world further so that like the normal channels you would go to like an adult for help like you certainly couldn't in this case for van then how important is it to have find her own space i think it's i think that struggle is so universal to any young person that like coming 
who are you once you sort of realize you're able at some point to detach from your family of origin? Like who, who really are you and what's, what space can you occupy? And I think that's like a really exciting and ex- like the, one of the most exciting things about being young. Um, and I think she definitely is trying to, if not find her own space um, through music, music is like a, is an entry point for her to sort of see like what she wants and what feels good to her. Because I think so much of her life up to that point has been sort of like reading the moods of her mother or just sort of like going along for the ride and being sort of more proactive and like making a choice and having her own agency is, is where um, I think she starts to find her own space. I think it's very interesting depending on what types of family systems you grow up in, how there's the person that is always walking on eggshells. You know, if you have volatile parents, it's, I'm just thinking, you know, you could be quiet, you're just watching and it's hard to ever kind of assert yourself properly. I don't know. It yes. just, I recognised, not particularly from my own family so much. I mean, different versions of it, but parts of it I understood. Yes. I mean, really, I think it's so funny as an adult when you make friends or like you meet partners or, you know, any, you, you meet any new person, it's sort of like going around to like the Museum of Natural History and looking at all these different habitats being like, wow, this is wild. Like this is so, like this is so unlike, you know, my experience. I mean, but it really does. It really does. um, It's interesting to see how people respond and whether they like overcorrect a perceived mistake or whether they sort of like fall into line with the, you know, the the family narrative. It's really, I mean, I find family so fascinating. Well, and also... I spoke to a therapist recently and it was interesting in the way that she was talking about systems, certain family yeah. systems that are patterns. And I think we can sometimes think our family dynamic is so unique, but actually, yes. you know, if it's an alcoholic family system or it's there's a secret, there's often the person who's the holder of the secret, yes. you know, and then there's the orbit of everyone around yes. these certain people that have power. Mm-hmm. And then how, yeah, we grow up and either you leave stay, to yeah. become yourself yeah, or, or you, you stay. remain in the orbit. So interesting. Oh, well, this reminds me of another piece you wrote for Lenny. Oh, yeah. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> I mean, it's about your grandma and... How much was she a part of your life growing up? Very much. So my, like I mentioned earlier, my parents were always, you know, they were both working really late hours um, when I was really young. And my parents had like a deal worked out with their parents to have two weeks with one, um, with my mom's parents. I remember like three summers like this where every two weeks they would switch off. And they all, they hated each other. They all hated each other. So like the switch offs were like one, one car goes out, the other car goes in. It was really, and, and anytime, anytime there was any delay or like they had to talk to each other, it always ended up being this really loud, raucous, like very memorable. I mean, like dishes flying. Like Really? Why really, did they hate each I other so know. much? I don't know. I don't know, but they really did. You could write a book just about that. <laughs> oh my God. So with your grandma, when did you start 
to question her history and maybe can you tell us when she came to the U.S. Yes. and why? Yeah, so I always wanted to know. I always had questions. So my, my grandmother and my father came to the U.S. in the 50s and my grandmother was uh, Czech and she had this secret or this other life before my father was born um, that nobody really knew about. She was like, we'd heard that she had maybe been married, maybe had kids who were still alive. Nobody knew. Um, and uh, she just never said, she just wouldn't talk about it. And then she came to the U.S. and she was really, um, well, she moved, well, she left her family home for whatever reason. She never talked about it, but there was, I think there was some trauma or something. Um, and she came to, she moved to Germany, to Nuremberg, where she lived alone um, for many years. And my father was born there. And, um, and then they came to the U.S. together when he was, when he was small and she just kind of started over here and she got married after a couple, and I remember my father telling me stories about when they were, you know, when they had first arrived and just how it was, you know, always in the context of like, you don't know how lucky you are, you know, which obviously, of course, like I'm very lucky, but it was just these stories about living in the corner of someone's room, you know, that's like, that's because there was nowhere else to go. And I think when my grandmother got married, um, it was a relief to her, but it was also like a bad marriage. And I think that was really difficult, but she was always very, um, she was always very open with me in a way that other, other people weren't. And she was always very like frank about the advice that she gave me. And she was very realistic. I think because she had lived a very difficult life and, um, and yeah, I, I always, I always asked her, like I never stopped asking and it, it's, I, and I feel like I'll never, I'll never know the truth really, but the information I ended up getting from her towards the very end of her life was even, you know, was really, I think she was, there was like a lot of shame and she was really, um, I think she was trying to protect something in, in that silence and that secrecy, but I don't know, I don't know how. Um, I don't, I wish I could have convinced her otherwise. And I, you know, I wish that I had more time with her. Oh, it's painful, isn't yeah. it? When you lose. Yes. I think about her all the time. And it's funny because, you know, I've had so much, I have a very small family now. So many people, unfortunately, passed away in my family. But she's someone I think about all the time. And she's, you know, almost, I mean, once a week, even I, I feel like I'm always I'm like, oh, I wonder what she would have said about that, or I wonder, you know. And I, I, it's funny how if someone you feel known by someone in your family, how valuable that is. Because I think so few people really feel that way. I think there's like this, you know, they don't understand me, they don't get. And I, it was really a strange thing to feel known by your like crazy, you know, illiterate, non-English speaking grandma. Like it was just she was this. There was we had no points of symmetry in our, like, you know, what I was going through in my life was not anything like what she was going through in her life. Yet I felt so understood by her. And I think she felt understood by me too. And as much as I could understand her. Um, and she always was very kind of grisly about marriage. Yes. Is that right? Um, always. But sex was, was okay. Yes. She was What was very, her relationship between those two? I think she really um, had I think she was married when she had a, a range of experience with men and I think she'd been married I think she hadn't been married I think she'd sort of she sort of knew 
like she wasn't afraid to lay it out for me, like how things... Because one of the things she said was, don't let them use you up. Yes, that was her That was her number one. Like I remember her, like just the way she said it, that was like a big, that was like her most often repeated piece of advice. Just like do what you want to do, like live your life, but don't let them use you up. Like she, that was her. And she wasn't, you know, and I asked her, you know, was this, do you mean like, don't you mean, are you talking about like, you're talking about like sex? Is this what we're talking about? And she, um, and she was like, no, I don't let them, you know what I mean? Don't let them use you up. And I was like, yeah, I think I do. I think I know exactly what you mean. Well, and in that piece, you use this phrase that I hadn't heard of before or thought of, but it just clicked was when you fall in love and, and men can be an emotional sinkhole, like you can, and how you do pour everything in, but as we get older and maybe we've done it a few times, you kind of are, you're wary enough to go, let's pull back here. Yeah. Or like, you know, keep the, some sense of self. Yes. Yes, exactly. I think, or just like you you run up a little less quickly or like you, there's more caution or something. I don't know what it is. Um, I mean, of course you still get hurt. You can still get hurt, but it's not the, I mean, it's not the same as those first really big, bad hurts, you know? (laughs) (laughs) How much does your heritage, your Eastern European heritage, inform your work I feel like it's very um uh, what's the right word it's it's in welcome to the slipstream in terms of Sophia's character masks her accent and there's a lot of effort and Van can tell her mum's mental state depending on how rigid her accent is I think it's just always there and I think an interesting thing for me was I was raised by immigrants and like how do those people react to kind of being dropped into this culture they don't really they don't really understand or they can't really participate in and like what is that like how do they how do they navigate that um how do you how do you recalibrate yourself in a in a new place when you feel disconnected um and then in this new book too i think it's just like also the stories you hear when you're growing up like i heard so many stories especially i mean about the about the war and just about the about eastern europe during that time um so that i feel like that that was very much part of my storytelling infrastructure as a as a young person, and I think it's you can't you know that that doesn't go away. You have another book that's coming out, and you are you do run this incredible project called the Freya Project, and I think it makes sense to talk a bit about the Freya Project because it your book is also about so is about women and their connections to one another, and I feel like there's this theme running through. You're right. Like this, in this like constellation of all of my different projects, that is a very similar theme, um, and sort of amplifying the voices of women. And that's what we're doing at the Freya Project. Um, we, Noni Brisky and I, started the organization right after the election results, almost immediately after, in just you know the same fashion that so many people started doing so many exciting things, just feeling wrecked and helpless and. We tried to figure out what we could contribute to lessen that feeling among women in this country. So we decided it would be important to start something local in our community because we wanted to bring women 
people, everyone who had been sort of like obsessively staring at their screens and sort of you know, scrolling and scrolling and how, how could this have happened? And just this people who felt just frozen in that moment, how to take them out of that and bring them into a room together and just that reassurance of human, other human bodies in a room with you who feel the same way, who believe the same things, who have the same sense of right and wrong. And just to know that like you are not alone in those feelings. And then to listen to stories of universally you know, moving stories from women based on these themes that are, I think everyone can, I mean, I mean, we have, we've had themes from a time that you stood up for yourself to a time you, you know, were the only woman in the room to the time you, I mean, our very first one was actually very reproductive justice um, oriented and it was about a pregnancy scare. And it was just really fascinating to see how different the stories were about how universally just impactful and moving they were to everyone in the room. And, um, and then we wanted to extrapolate that connection to other, or other women in the country who we don't know, like women who are primarily working in red states, um, in states who think that the coastal elites like, like us had, weren't, you know, weren't thinking about their, their priorities and their um, concerns and where we reached out to several over the, over the years we've been doing this, we've reached out to um, um, mostly reproductive justice-oriented organizations, but also women's health um, and domestic violence um, support groups. And um, and they're almost always exclusively volunteer-run, these tiny, tiny organizations on a shoestring budget working in these communities that are sometimes hostile, especially with all, especially abortion funds and um, any abortion service providers. And it's been really, I mean, it's... Meeting, meeting these women, even, and unfortunately I haven't met all of them personally, but just getting to know them even through email and sort of lending our support, um, not just financial, which is we do raise money. It, it, these readings are fundraising readings, but also to draw attention from our community to theirs. I think that it's thankless work often that they do. Um, and I think there is a, in their communities, it's like, shame, you know, shameful. And the saddest part of this, of our Freire Project work has been multiple instances of women usually who are helming these organizations, almost actually, no, not usually, always, um, who email us kind of skeptically and nervously and saying, what, what's going on? You know, um, thinking that we are like some right-wing organization trying to like backdoor, like... Oh, really? Infiltrate. I mean, this, because this has happened to them. It's true. It, it really is. So, I mean, obviously now we have relationships with them and now we're sort of like in, in that community and that network of particularly abortion care providers. Um, I think that we've sort of, you know, <laughs> proven that we're not, obviously. Um, uh, but it's that it just, it's so sad that like in addition to doing so much important work, they also have to worry about the, you know, this other crazy element in their communities. Again, it makes me feel like as as, and like, you know, I said, we are a volunteer-run organization too. And as difficult as it is sometimes to sort of get up after a really horrible news day, it's also really, um, it's also really fueling and mm. restorative. And I feel very, um, I feel so, so grateful that I have this going on because it makes me feel less helpless when we've had a, a couple of weeks like we've just had. 
Well, and then your other project, which is another book called A Women's Drink, <laughs> and it's what is the the kind of the line is bold recipes for bold women. So what was the process of that like, like reaching out to people yeah. and what did you learn about these women that you admired and their drinking preferences? Oh my gosh, that was the, that was the, so fun. And I found that this process of writing this book was so different to writing a novel because it was like, I, it was like a very project managing kind of a thing where you had to sort of look at it. It wasn't just yours. It's sort of everyone's and sort of how do you make this work for everyone? And it, and it was really exciting to sort of um, reach out to all these incredible women who many of whom I've met through the Freya project, but women who I just out of the blue admired and they wrote back to me and it was so, and I think everyone sort of, there's this moment where like, yes, you know, it's, everything is very difficult, but I think also every woman in America could use a drink right now. You know, I think there is like that, that other side to, to like, everything is awful, but we need to have spaces where we can be with our friends and family in a place that feels safe and happy and comfortable and even celebratory. Um, because if we don't find those moments in our, <laughs> in our current world, then you know, then what we're doomed. Yes. Are there a couple of women who you can mention whose drinks really surprised you? Well, my, I think one of my favorites um, was Jamie Attenberg's. Oh, what because, is that? So she gave a whole list, which I loved. So she was like, you know, I've had a lot of favorite drinks. And I sort of love how um, we zeroed in on the Manhattan for her recipe. But I love how she said, oh, you know, I... Like when I was young, I drank like this, I drank like the cheapest thing. And then I made a, fr I made friends with a bartender who made me like a great Manhattan. And now that I'm older, I don't like whiskey anymore. So I like, you know, like, like a, it was, it was just so wonderful. And I, and I love this idea that like changing your mind is so exciting. And it's always like, you'll always find a new favorite. Like there's like a real, like, I don't know, there's an excitement in that, in that like your taste can change. And that's, and that's part of like being a person. It's really exciting. I also think of how, yeah, your drinks change depending on where you are in your life. Yes, exactly. What do you need? Like, what are you looking for in that drink? Are you looking to be like the mysterious stranger at the bar drinking a Manhattan? Or are you like, are you having more drinks by the beach and, you know, you want like a margarita or something? I think, you know, and I, with this book too, I wanted it to be very accessible to everyone and for everyone to have an entry point into the book. <laughs> And, um, and I think that the, like, it, I, we worked really intentional to have recipes that were very easy, some that were like two ingredients, and then some that were very complicated and had, um, you know, techniques that are not for a first time attempt, but so that everyone would be able to find what they needed and to make the drink that they want. Because at the end of the day, I think every, every woman should be able to have what she wants and like serve what she wants. And I think that um, I'm hoping that this, that we that we got we got there with the book. But. And how do we follow the Freya project yes. and you and oh. um, a woman's drink? Oh my God! So you can follow us um, for a woman's drink. We're doing a IGTV video series, which has been really fun. We've been um, sitting down with different really cool um, women authors. Uh, talking about their work and their favorite drinks. Um, you can follow us there at hashtag a woman's drink. I'm at, um, on Instagram at N-D-B-U-R-I-A-N and at, um, and Elsa's at Elsa Bar NYC. And Freya Project is at Freya Project NYC. 
And I hope that you will, um, I hope your listeners will check out the Freya Project and be inspired to, yeah, and even to, follow to do pop-ups in their towns. And yes, just, and follow. Just to hear the women's stories. Yes. And also it exposes you to other women to follow who yes. are also oh my gosh. writers, activists, you know, our readers all across have been the board. so amazing. I mean, um, Angie, you were one of our readers. You were I was so, you were so good. We you had were such so, a great oh, time. Oh, you were so good. I love your piece so much. Oh, I still think about it. Oh, it was good. Really, it was so good. Um, yeah, no, we've had, we've been so blessed to have so many. And again, like our readers are so generous and wonderful. And I, I think that that's part of the, that's part of why all this works is just, I think people want to be together and they want to share their stories and they, other people want to hear those stories. And I think that this is a universal, again, like creating those spaces to gather in times that are less than ideal and finding power in those moments and, and, um, not just, not just not feeling helpless. Like how do you, how do you combat that feeling of helplessness? And I'm, I'm hoping that, I'm hoping that this will be our year to sort of start that, start that I momentum. Think it will be. I hope so. Thank you so much. Thank you, Angie. Yes. This is so nice. <laughs> this is a lovely chat. I hope you enjoyed the podcast with Natalka My big takeaway, I think, was I want to explore the generations of women in my family. I want to ask those questions before it's too late and examine how their lives were and probably how they've affected my own, perhaps without me knowing it. It's worth asking the questions and I encourage everyone to do the same. And let me know if you have success with that. You can get in touch at Lit Up Show on Instagram and Twitter. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.